It's great to be here. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis 3. As you're doing that, I've also been given the job to sell books. Um, I don't get a raise for that, though. Um, the, the best scream and deal book I'm going to recommend is this book by Mark Dever called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, this is out on the book table. It is 50% off. We believe very much in Mark Dever's vision, and we think it's bib- because it's biblical. So, so buy that. It, it, if you're looking for what makes a good church, that's a good one. Um, another book strongly encourage you to read is this book by, called Gaining by Losing by J.D. Greer. If you want to know why you might rejoice if your church shrinks, read this book. It might actually be good to lose members of your church, J.D. Greer says, if they go and build God's kingdom somewhere else. Um, So, yes, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. It's great to be here. Love being at the North Campus. And let me pray, and we'll we'll look at this text together. We're going to look at the whole chapter of Genesis 3, but our key text, really what I'm preaching is Genesis 3.15. Let me pray. Lord, have mercy on us this morning. We're needy people. Lord, we're distracted people. We're probably a proud people. And we need to be humbled. And we need to see our great Savior who loves to exalt those who humble themselves. So we pray that our Savior Jesus Christ would be the great hero this morning, that he would be a parent from these verses, and that we would leave here rejoicing that he has come to be our king, our savior, and our warrior. In his name we pray, amen. Here's a Bible verse you won't see on a Christmas card this winter. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says this, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, put that underneath uh, the, the, the fall foliage with your smiling family. It's an interesting vision, isn't it? To think about Jesus, baby Jesus we celebrate this time of year, holding a sword. Little manger there, guy can barely hold on to anything, he's holding on to a sword. Those are the words though of a warrior. That sounds like a declaration of war. In the ancient warrior culture of Sparta, anytime a baby was born, uh, five officials, they're called ephors, would come and they would examine the child. If it was a female, the thought was, could this child grow up to produce warriors? And if this is a male child, will this person grow up to be a warrior? Because their whole culture depended on warfare, on having warriors because they're under attack. And if the officials didn't think things would work out for this child, they would take the baby into the mountains of Greece and let it die. Why? Because their whole culture depended on having warriors. I wonder what they would have thought if they saw baby Jesus. Now, your life sometimes feels a bit like a war, doesn't it? Sometimes you're battling sin, and sometimes you're not even sure if you're winning. Sometimes your relationships 
feel like a battle. Conflict constantly. In your job, no matter how hard you work, you seem, it seems like there's forces resisting you from succeeding, being thwarted. And for some of you, maybe God seems hostile rather than your ally. Well, that's because we're at war. And if we're at war, we need a warrior. And what we're going to see in Genesis 3, I'm going to show you, we believe that uh, the gospel applies to all of the Bible, and that the whole text is about Jesus. I'm going to show you that from Genesis 3, 15. And we're going to see the origin of this battlefield we call life, show that the, the Bible actually relates to your life. And so as we think about the coming of Jesus, sleeping very peacefully in this feeding trough, this manger... We're also supposed to think, according to Genesis 3, that that baby is a warrior. And that is going to cause us to rejoice. So that's the application we're after for this sermon. Rejoice, which is what we do at Christmas, right? Rejoice, why? Because our warrior has come. That's the big idea. Rejoice, our warrior has come. He's come. Genesis 3.15 prepares us to see that Jesus is our warrior. And we can say what Adam and Eve couldn't, that our warrior has come. So to see that, we're going to look at four things under this warrior idea. We're going to look at first, our enemy, our enemy, then second, our battlefield, the battlefield of life. Then third, we will look at our warrior. And then lastly, fourth, we'll look at the strategy strategy. So an enemy, our enemy, our battlefield, our warrior, and the strategy. So let's rejoice. Our warrior has come. But first, let's meet our enemy. Our enemy. Look with me at Genesis 3.1. Genesis 3.1. Read it with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, Adam's enemy is our enemy, Satan. We believe this is a true story. Jesus affirms this to be true. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. He is a liar, and he's been a liar from the beginning. He wants us to not trust God's Word. He's at work in our culture, and sometimes he's at work in our own minds at times. Think about this. Did God actually say that he created the universe out of nothing just by speaking, that seems pretty unscientific. Did, did God, let me get controversial for a second, did God actually say, you're only allowed to sleep with one person, you have to be married to them, and they have to be of the opposite sex? Did God actually say that? That seems pretty intolerant. Did God actually say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? Seems like it's serving me pretty well right now. Get to love money, get to buy the gifts I want for the people I love. Did God actually say we have to love our enemies? It's so much more fun to make them look like fools online. To own them. See, we have an enemy, and he's very powerful, and he's very persuasive with his lies. 
So I'm here to tell you this morning, if you have Christmas lights, and you have ham, and you have the Christmas Eve service this Friday at 4 o'clock, come. And you have vacation time, and you have gingerbread, and you have family unity, but you do not have a warrior, you do not have Jesus as your warrior, you have no shot defeating our enemy. You have no shot. Basically, you have no reason to rejoice. You are Christmas, Advent, is just a pleasant little rest stop, maybe, on the highway to hell. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you are, if that's the case, if you don't have a warrior, you're a sinner obeying the very enemy of your soul. But what sort of rejoicing would we have if our warrior has actually come? Could we rejoice? So we've looked at our enemy. Now let's look at our battlefield, our battlefield. So in ancient times, when there was a battle going on, actually until fairly modern times, people would go up on hillsides and look out of the battlefield to see what's happening. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at our battlefield and we're going to see a number of things. And the first thing we're going to see on this battlefield that we're going to look out upon is the worst thing you can possibly see at war. Mutiny. You're going to see mutiny. The mutiny of sin. That's the first thing we're going to see on this battlefield. The mutiny of sin. Read verses 2 through 6 with me. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Sin is treason. It is mutiny. It is disobeying the commands of our loving Father who is our commander. Adam and Eve committed mutiny on this battlefield, in the very first battle, and everything else that's going to follow flows from this. And here's the issue. Adam and Eve represented us which means that the corruption and guilt that they deserve has fallen on us. And furthermore, we follow their example every day. We're mutineers. And apart from our warrior, we continue to be traitors, continue to commit treason. We continue to commit mutiny, the mutiny of sin. My dirty clothes basket at home very has this kind of it's two, two parts, can divide it up very handy, one for lights and one for darks. But commonly what happens is one day I'll look at it and there's darks on top of both piles. And I think, now how did this happen? I know that there's lights in there somewhere. Where, how did this dark thing end up on top of white socks and white shirts? And I start digging down. And somewhere in the strata, I find something. I find usually a shirt, 
and usually a certain color. Guess what that color was that moves from light to dark? I would have guessed gray too, but it's not. Every time, it's light blue. Every time. So one evening, I come home and I think, light blue, is it a light or a dark? Seems like it's a matter of preference today, and I put it in there. But over time, what happens is light blue becomes dark blue becomes black. What seemed like a preference leads to darkness. And that's the way sin works. One day, just feels like a preference. Doesn't seem like it's harmful at all. But because it's mutiny, because it's against the God in whom there is no darkness at all, sin will always ultimately lead to darkness. It's mutiny. It always ends that way. It's mutiny against the God whom there is no darkness at all. So we're looking at our battlefield, and we've seen the mutiny of sin. There's something else in the battlefield. There's a canyon running right down the middle of this battlefield, if we think about it, and it's the canyon of guilt, the canyon of guilt. Look at verse 7 with me, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew it. See, right down this battlefield is this canyon of guilt that you cannot get out of. If your eyes are opened to the mutiny of sin, you recognize you are objectively guilty before God. You cannot stand trial before Him and pass. You can't. And you feel it inside a little bit sometimes, don't you? You feel that. The canyon of guilt. So this is a horrible battlefield. We've got, we've got the mutiny of sin. We've got the canyon of guilt. There's more to see as you look out on this battlefield. There's the prison camp of shame. The prison camp of shame where people are trapped. The prison camp of shame. Let's read verses 7 through 10. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he, that's Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. I was naked. And I hid myself. Sin always eventually leads to shame. Always. What if people really knew what you said? What if they really knew what you said or did when you were in college? Or that one time when you were out of town on business? Or when you had access to the company checkbook? What would they think of you what if they knew what you really texted about that person? You would hide, wouldn't you? The shame of it all. You wouldn't want anybody to know. You would use anything you could to hide that, even if it was just leaves, branches. You'd want to erase it from history, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want God to bring it up, that's for sure. At times in this battlefield of life, we've all been shackled in the prison camp of shame, and we can't break ourselves out. If only there was a warrior who could free us from this. 
But we still haven't seen the whole battlefield. The mutiny of sin is horrible. The canyon of guilt is deep and dark. The prison camp of shame is harsh. But if we gaze upon the battle, we see something else. Conflict among the allies. Conflict among the allies. That's kind of our fourth aspect of this battlefield, conflict among the allies. It's bad enough that there's mutiny disobeying commanders. It's even, it's, it's just another level when you look around and see the troops fighting among themselves, the allies in conflict. And that's exactly what we see. We're going to see that in a variety of ways. The first conflict we see is conflict with the ally of the opposite sex. Conflict with the ally of the opposite sex. Look, look at verses 11 through 13, and then we'll skip down to 16. 11 through 13. And he said, that's God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman in whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Skip to verse 16. To the woman, he, that's God, said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary against your husband, but he shall rule over you. The opposite sex was meant to be our ally, working together, helping glorify God, living on this this earth, but now it's a battlefield. We see conflict among the allies, and we hear it every time we go Christmas shopping this time of year through George Michael's sweet voice. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next day, you gave it away. Men and women, not, not paid equally, we're told. Conflict. Couples that pledge to love one another till death can't even live in the same zip code anymore. Men abusing women under their care and authority. Women manipulating men. Conflict among the allies. Conflict among the allies of the opposite sex. But there's also conflict with another ally. Conflict with the ally of nature. The ally of nature. Let's read verses 17 through 19. 17 through 19. And to Adam he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Nature was our ally. Because of sin, it's all cursed. Our work is cursed. We hear this every Christmas too. My favorite rockers from the 80s all got together and raised money for uh, famine in Africa, and they, they sing this. There won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. The greatest gift they'll get this year is life, and they're right about that. Do you have eternal life this morning? But here's where it relates. Where no rain or rivers flow, where nothing ever grows, oh, do they know it's Christmas time at all? See, they know. They feel the curse. 
Conflict among the ally of nature. Now your work, it's hard, isn't it? Supply chain issues, dead-end jobs. You're, you're, you've got thorns and thistles in your gardens. Now in natural world, it, only, it was meant to be our ally. Now it seems like it only ever opens itself up one point in our lives when it's over. Opens it up just so we can be buried in the ground. Conflict among the allies. Conflict the ally of nature. So we'll notice one last conflict among the allies, and then we'll get to our warrior. Conflict with God, our ally. Conflict among the allies. Conflict with ally of the opposite sex, conflict with nature, and now we're seeing conflict with God, our ally. Look at verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God, our ally, our friend, we should be walking with him, the story tells us. But because of our mutiny, we've initiated a conflict with him, and he can't tolerate it. He's got to put a warrior with a flaming sword keeping us away. Can you imagine a worse battlefield? Mutiny. The mutiny of sin. This canyon of guilt you can't get out of. This prison camp of shame. Conflict among the people and things that are supposed to be working with you. But this is our lives, isn't it? This is life. How could we possibly rejoice in the midst of a war like this? You know who doesn't rejoice at the birth of Christ? Buddy the Elf from the movie Elf. Why? Why doesn't he rejoice? Because he lives in a land of happy elves. And then he goes walking through the seven levels of the candy cane forest. And then he goes beside the the sea of swirly, twirly gumdrops. He doesn't rejoice at the birth of Jesus because he lives in a fantasy world. He doesn't live on a battlefield. He doesn't need a warrior. But we do. We do live on a battlefield. We do need a warrior. So let's rejoice because now we get to meet him. Our warrior has come. Our warrior has come. Let's look now at our warrior. Let's read verses 14 through 15 and see our warrior. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that's hostility, that's war, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When we see how bad the battlefield is, we can't help but rejoice that a warrior would come to rescue us, to win the war. When we see how strong our enemy is, how treacherous this battlefield is, when we really despair how dark things are 
and the danger and death we're facing. When we hear of the coming of a warrior, how could we not rejoice? How can you not rejoice? In the battlefield of this life, our warrior, warrior has finally come 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Our warrior is here. The baby is the warrior. This is one of the reasons why we celebrate Christmas, celebrate Advent. He is the warrior offspring of the woman. He's the one who came to be born into this world, this battlefield. Why? To deliver us from it, to save us. He's the Son of God Himself, eternally existing as Spirit. He took on human flesh for us to fight our battles. He was born of the virgin, Mary, some sort of kind of, because he was a virgin, born of a virgin, he came basically interrupting that mutiny of sin that's at work in us that started with Adam. He isn't plagued by that. He can win. So we've seen our enemy, our battlefield, our warrior, now lastly the strategy. And this is where a lot of people and a lot of Christians have gone wrong in the past and are probably going wrong right now. The strategy, let's look at it. Let's read verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The battle strategy for our warrior is to suffer with humility. That's the battle strategy. It's not to create a kingdom with the right politics. It's to suffer with humility. He entered the battle as a baby, offspring of the woman, but he's a great warrior. And he will be victorious, we're told. He's just a humble little baby, born to this poor couple in the dirty part of the world where there's no heat like we have, no electric light. Our enemy can wound, we're told, our horrible enemy can wound our warrior. Even, it seems, kill him. But the comparison here is an interesting one. It's the difference between a foot injury in battle and a head injury. And our warrior is willing to suffer a foot injury even though it's death so that he can give a decisive fatal head wound to the enemy, defeating our enemy. Our warrior is far beyond the match of our enemy. The strategy is to live on this battlefield, take the hits that we deserve for our sin, to suffer for us. Take the shots, take the betrayals, take the friendly fire, and that's how he wins. He suffers what we should suffer. He dies the death we deserve for our sin and our guilt to defeat Satan. So that's one of the reasons baby Jesus was born. Listen to 1 John 3.8. Listen to how he defeats that enemy of ours. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Genesis 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Our enemy is being destroyed. That's a reason to rejoice. 
And look what else our warrior does. There's this mutiny of sin. How are we going to solve it? Listen to how the baby is announced in Matthew 1.21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his, his people from what? Their sins. No more mutiny. If you are one of Jesus' people, you are freed from the mutiny of sin. That's a reason to rejoice. You're no longer a traitor. You're no longer a traitor. But what about that deep canyon of guilt you can't climb out of? The cross is a ladder. Listen to Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Having forgiven us, what? All our trespasses. But what about the legal commands, the legal demands that force us to be guilty by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, how? Nailing it to the cross. But what about the prison camp of shame? What's God's strategy for that? We actually see it in verse 21. Do you see it? Do you see it there? Then the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them God says, you're ashamed, you're, you're right to feel shamed, here's how I'm going to deal with your shame. I'm going to kill something, and I'm going to clothe you with its outer garments. And you know what we read in the New Testament? We see Jesus going to the cross, willingly sent by his Father to be killed. Why? to clothe us with the, with the righteousness of Christ, his perfect righteousness. No more shame. The, the, the prison camp of shame, the doors are open. You don't need to be there anymore. You can walk out, you're free. You're free, your warrior has come. That's a reason to rejoice. What about the conflict among our allies of the opposite sex or nature or God? Colossians 1.20 tells us that through the warrior child, God is reconciling to himself all things, all things, whether on heaven, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our enemy defeated and in hell forever, rejoice. Our battlefield transformed into a new heavens and a new earth. Think about that curse for a minute. Thistles and thorns. What was it Jesus wore on his head when he was on the cross? Thorns, cursing the curse, undoing the curse. New heavens and new earth with no curse, rejoice. Our warrior reigning, rejoice. All through a strategy of humility. You need to get in on this. You need to get in on this. Don't assume you're in on this. Abandon all hope in yourself. Abandon it all. Seek God until he gives you faith to believe this. You, picture it, free from sin and guilt and shame. Free. Your relationships can be transformed. This is the working out of the promise in Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman. NYPD Captain John Sweeney got the news at 3.30 a.m. Unless an officer was in the hospital, he had to come on and report for duty. Why? Because the armistice of World War I was signed. The warriors were coming home. 
the war was over. Here is his own words. He writes this. At 4.15 a.m., the first steam whistle was going to be followed by another, first from one section of the city and then another. Then the church bells to peel out the wonderful news. Heads began to appear from the windows, and people would say, hey, cop, what's this all about? And if I answered one, I think I answered 150, that the war was over. Then the crowds began to appear in the street, and peace seemed to breathe in the very atmosphere. Peace seemed to breathe in the very atmosphere. It all seemed so beautiful to see everybody rejoicing. The bells and whistles kept on increasing until 7 a.m. Everything seemed to be blowing, whistling, rattling. Everybody had some sort of an implement to make a racket with, and it seemed as if about a dozen New Year's Eves and election nights were rolled into one. His account continues about crowds filling the street, confetti and paper flying, impromptu bands marching, finally, peace. Our warrior has come. He is even more successful in his victory than the, vic- than the victors of World War I. And here's the thing. Whenever there's victory, here's what follows. Peace. Peace. That's why it's interesting and worth rejoicing that our warrior has come. That's why... The offspring of the woman, when he came as a warrior, causes the angels to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that we would rejoice. Your son Jesus has come. You sent him. Help us to believe this and live this. In Jesus' name, amen.